0: It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. These words of the Lord God from the book of Genesis, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is not good that man should be alone. You'll remember that Adam, in the second chapter of Genesis, is placed in the Garden of Eden. He is placed there for two essential purposes, to work the garden and to keep it. But these are really and truly the same action. As Ambrose says, in tilling, there is a certain exercise of man's virtue, while in keeping it is understood that the work is accomplished. Ambrose says that these two complementary acts, that man can seek after something new and may keep what he has acquired. It's probably just a good word to all of you who are tempted to uh, work forever and work and work and work and have nothing saved up for retirement and have nothing that you can actually keep. It's just a good word. But in all of his tilling and keeping, there's a problem. Not only does Adam have the certain temptation of a certain tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which has fruit which will be deadly to him, His relationship with creation is such that he cannot actually have a positive knowledge of himself. He can till the ground, he can keep the garden, but there is something still not good about his state. Why? Because he lives in a state of solitude. He is alone. This is the one thing in creation that is not good. Adam looks around and he does not see anything in the created order that is recognizable. He looks down at his hands and he looks at the hooves of a deer, just an idea, and says, These two things are not the same. He looks at his well, other things and realizes they're not the same. He cannot have any awareness of himself as a person because he is alone. John Paul II in his collection of audiences entitled The Theology of the Body Remarks Upon the State of Solitude, right from the first moment of existence, created man finds himself before God as if in search of his own entity. It could be said that he is in search of the definition of himself. A contemporary person would say that he is in search of his own identity. Does that sound familiar, this search for Identity. This insistence upon my identity? This knowledge of identity is hindered. In fact, it is rendered impossible because first, he is alone before God. And second, there is no one in the created order who is like him. To be alone before God is a daunting place to be. I don't know if you've ever tried to pray for an hour or two alone in silence. But my mind starts to do things like this. It's like a little group of kids poking me going, hey, 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 I want ice cream. Do you want ice cream? I want ice cream. You're tired, you should take a nap. It's just constant barrage of little little, little, little children interrupting me. It's like my life in general. The mind wanders. We think mainly about ourselves. God does not often speak. And we get used to the silence by filling it with our inmost thoughts. But to be alone in the world is also daunting. We cannot help but turn inward. Think of Tom Hanks in the film Castaway. He makes a volleyball his friend simply so that he could have someone to talk to even if that conversation is insanely one-sided. He will risk his life for his friend, even if it is a friend whom he cannot talk with, cannot be comforted by. What do we see from this? We see something, I think, of what it means to be made in the image of God, to be made for relationship. Gregory of Nyssa illumines this. One who is made in the image of God has the task of becoming who he is. I love that capacity for double meaning. One who is made in the image of God has the task of becoming who he is. Meaning you are made to become who you are and you are simultaneously made to become who God is. In other words, the image of God in human beings means that we were made as essential part of our nature to be God, but also to be most clearly ourselves. And how can we do this? Is it not in Christ Jesus, who is in every respect one of us? Union with Christ is the final end of man. But what does this mean? Does it not mean that you and I were created for the very life of God, the life of the Trinity, to exist forever in a communion of love and glory that is the divine life? Thus these words of God, it is not good that the man should be alone. They illustrate a solution that is in fact greater than what might be obvious in the text that of a woman to be with him, that of the married life as a kind of final solution to the problem of our solitude. I know there are some of you here who think that. Life's going to be a lot better when I finally get married. In fact... What we see from these words is something of the superiority of the celibate life. I know this is a new idea among many of you, but but the reality of it is that historically, I'll just tell you a little bit, uh, Martin Luther was the one who said, nope, 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 they're equal, they're equal. He was wrong biblically. Remember that our Lord and Savior was a celibate man. Jesus teaches this clearly, that not everyone can receive this, but that there are some to whom it is given to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Paul writes to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them to remain single as I am. Throughout the New Testament, the apostles write of the goodness of widows remaining single, having their needs met by the church, the goodness of men and women being single-minded as to the will of the Lord. And the church has consistently upheld the goodness of monastic vocations, which includes celibacy. Why? Why? precisely for this reason, that our essential solitude can only be met by the embrace of the living God. Marriage is a sacrament. In it, in the flesh, the mystery of Christ and his church is signed forth as man and woman experience the grace of God in their married life. If you desire that, you desire a good thing. But celibate Christians show us that it is no more than that. Married life and married people still experience loneliness. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands but you know who you are. You you can spend every night in the same bed and yet still have this feeling of being alone. More than that, the Apostle Paul encourages that married couples actually should have just embraced this. They should take on periods of refraining from a physical relationship. Why? For the sake of prayer. He's being consistent here by making it clear that our deepest longings, the longings that come from our loneliness, from our solitude, can only be met in God. Take as a negative example the majority of the Supreme Court's decision and the Obergefell decision in 2015, writing in the final paragraph, no union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. And it concludes that the petitioners should not be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions, and by that they mean marriage. But we should ask, is that true? Is there no union more profound than marriage? Does it actually embody the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family? And are those who are not married condemned to live in loneliness? As those excluded. I must stand before you to say and say, absolutely not. That is a bunch of garbage. Why? Because we Christians believe in the gospel. We might wonder, have we made too much of marriage? Have we Christians given a witness to marriage being essential to happiness have we pitied those Christians who never married rather than viewing such Christians as images of the gospel and their commitment to the celibate life as a commitment to the Lord? I've known uh, many women in the church, none here, of course, who would go around to all the single women and say, it's a shame you're not married yet. Or to the men, it's a shame you haven't settled down yet. You know, you really should do that. No. No, not at all, in fact. Now again, I want you to understand, marriage is good, it is a gift. Those who desire it, desire a good thing. But it is not, in any measure, the final solution to our essential solitude. The answer to our solitude, to our loneliness, is nothing less than union with God wrought through the continual working of Christ through grace, that union embodies the highest ideals that a Christian can have. Love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. We read from the letter to the Hebrews today, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. We think usually of salvation as being in Christ, and rightly so. The New Testament certainly speaks of salvation as being in Christ, but the New Testament also speaks of Christ being in us, the hope of glory. What I mean is this, that our eschatological view of final perfection in the embrace of God has to be balanced by our understanding that Christ is among us even now. Among us in the sacramental participation of the Eucharist, even among us in the image of celibate Christians. In truth, this is the reason that many Christians misread Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. They read it as something more than what it is. An understanding that in the final joining of, of the church to Christ as his bride, all of this will pass away. I think this whole section from the letter to the Hebrews is essentially telling us what our future is as well as what is presently true. It is an eschatological end, but it is not entirely the present reality. Therefore, the New Testament authors recognize the differences between men and women, articulate the relationship between Jew and Greek, slave and free, all while maintaining that we are all made with the same nature in the same image. And thus, sexual gender continues to matter. It matters in marriage, it matters in the church, and it matters in society. And to say a a bit about the sacrament of marriage before I close, this is the reason for the Lord's condemnation, not only of divorce, but of remarriage. He states clearly that Moses wrote this commandment for the hardness of heart of the people, that they closed off their hearts, preferring to be lonely rather than experience the goodness of marriage. I don't say this to condemn anyone. I want you to hear me. I'm not condemning anyone. I'm simply saying that this is what Jesus says and we should say it too. What is this hardness of heart? Every married person, in fact, every Christian should hear this. That there is a temptation to hole up in loneliness To hide from husband or wife. To hide from others. To become withdrawn. And this is actually how every marriage that breaks down begins to break down. Intimacy is not maintained. And I don't just mean physical intimacy. I mean emotional intimacy. Which is of more value actually. Married couples stop sharing things with each other they stop talking. They stop inquiring of one another. What is it that you really desire? What is it that you really think? And so, for a man to divorce his wife and marry another is an act of adultery. Indeed, all acts of adultery are founded upon hardness of heart. I mean... Think about it for a moment. That's what causes a man to leave his wife and be joined to someone else. It's what causes a woman to leave her husband and be joined to someone else. It's what causes all manner of lust is that we think if I can just be complete in this one way, then I won't be so alone. And we should say without hesitation, what the Lord says about this. Confident that the Lord has said exactly what he is meant to say. Our loneliness does not come from being unmarried or married. Our essential loneliness does not come from not being sexually satisfied. Our loneliness does not even come from not being satisfied in our friendships. Friendships. But just as there is a problem, there is a cure to this, brothers and sisters, and it is simply this, the radical pursuit of holy intimacy with God, the pursuit of a life that is in no way alone. I was reminded this past week of how one of my great heroes in the faith, Bernard of Clairvaux, A celibate monk and abbot took all of his sexual energy, all of his loneliness, all of his discontentedness and he turned it towards the Lord in the deep intimacy of his interior life. It's a, kind of a funny story, but uh, I'll tell it now. Uh, I was ordained on, on August 20th to the priesthood, and that's the feast of Bernard of Clairvaux. And there's this wonderful story about Bernard going, and he was, he was very alone, and he was, he was praying alone in the church before an image of, of Mary holding Jesus. And, and in a sort of ecstasy, he said to the statue, show yourself a mother at which, we're told, uh, the, the image came to life and she bared her breast and, and shot him in the face with breast milk, which is a lovely, earthy story. I love it. You shouldn't be scandalized by this at all. It's a, it's a great story, right? Because he was experiencing this, this the, the realness, the closeness, the, the joy. All as a man who was never married. He experienced true Love. And so on the front of my ordination bulletin was an image of this, and it scandalized some people, and I'm glad it did, uh, because it was, it was quite fun. But here's what I want to say today, friends. It's this, that all of us, every single one of us, married or unmarried, young or old, with a really happy marriage, or a terribly unhappy marriage, will never, ever be satisfied in this life, will never experience the very things for which we were made unless we are likewise committed to this intimacy with Jesus, this intimacy with the Lord. May we pursue it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.